With Colin and Brent. <laughs> and I have the coffee in my hand right now. Colin, what is this fine beverage we are drinking today? This is Ethiopia Darar Ella. It is a single origin multi-regional. So it comes from the same area in Ethiopia, but it comes from several, several farms. And they mix and match the beans within that region in order to like keep a uh, constant flavor. It's also delicious. <laughs> yes. So we'll take a sip, an inaugural sip. Ah, dang. I'm tasting uh, coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I should have so, said something more profound, yes. but it's just coffee tasting. It's yeah. great, though. It's great coffee. Simply put, this is a this is a light roast, so it's got a lot of bright notes. Um, high acidity. And in the aroma, it's heavy in blueberry, and in the in the actual flavor on the palate, it is kind of a um, citrus. And awesome. And awesome. A little a good taste of awesomeness in there. And for those of you listening, Colin is the man who has roasted these beans and created this delicious awesomeness coffee. He is the purveyor of fine coffees via Urban Pioneer Roasting Company. You can check out his website. And if you're... Know him, you can actually buy his coffee and your world will change as a result because it is the best coffee well, thank you. in all of Long Beach, if not the world. We're still waiting on the uh, on the uh, voting results for the world. But in Long Beach, hands down, no problem. Thank you. So, uh, you know, uh, let's on, move on to theology. Theology it is. Theology it is. We're going to talk about the book of Mark. And uh, we thought we'd start with a general overview of the gospel of Mark. So, let's jump right in. Colin, what the heck's a gospel? Gospel? Yes. It's a writing surrounded of surrounded by Jesus. It is a uh, means good news. Means good news. You know, and it's it's not a biography. I think that's important. It's not a biography. It's it's biographical. Uh definitely has elements of biography in it, but it's not a it's not intended to be a full biography. And I think Mark, of all of the authors of gospels, is probably the most focused on the intent of his gospel to point out Jesus' messiahship. And he says it right off in his first verse. That's actually where we get the term gospel from, is in his first verse where he says, this is the good news about Jesus Christ. And he's really focused on and showing that Jesus is the Messiah, almost to the exclusion of other content. When you get sort of facts around other pieces of Jesus' life, like that he has a mother and brothers and sisters, and that... Um, that he may have had another profession as a carpenter earlier. Um, all of these are in the context showing him as the Messiah. Yeah. And these are shown as almost negative things like, you know, his, his family telling him to stop acting so crazy. And that, that, that context is showing him more as the Messiah and, and uh, him being uh, labeled a carpenter, you know, that's showing him more and more as a Messiah. So, so Mark is so focused on writing about, showing how Jesus is the Messiah. That's all he writes about Jesus. He's not writing about what he did on Tuesday mornings or what his normal uh, you know, work attire was or what he did on the days when he wasn't healing people. Um, you know, Over the years of his ministry, we get very few uh, antidotes in, in, in relation to how many days uh, Jesus was probably likely in ministry. And I think that's because Mark has really honed in on saying, here's the key attributes of Jesus as the Messiah. And not just the key attributes, but also Mark's filter for his audience to say, here's the key attributes of Jesus as the Messiah, to say, 
here's, here's what my audience needs to know to help them believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I think through all of those filters, you start to get a narrative that we call a gospel. Another interesting sort of thing about Mark uh, is that we think Mark wrote it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure, you know, you know, these things we just sort of take for granted. It says it at the top of the chapter, right? Or at the top of the top of the book, you know, from, uh, from uh, what we know, you know, this was, uh, you know, derived from some uh, first century uh, and second century church fathers. Papias in particular said that uh, Mark had written the gospel because he was, a, he was um, a person that had followed Peter around and he wrote down uh, what Peter had taught Clement. Uh, who comes along a little bit later, sort of reinforces that same notion that that uh, Mark had written down what Peter said. And, and Clement goes that extra step to sort of add that Peter knew about it uh, and didn't really do anything one way or the other. He didn't necessarily support it, and he didn't necessarily stop it. He just sort of knew about it. So it's kind of an interesting uh, maybe sub-dynamic there. And, and Papias, you know, he sort of says, you know, he sort of has this uh, interesting statement about how Mark kind of wrote uh, you know, not necessarily in order. Like maybe he wrote, you know, he's, he tries to verify that he thinks what Mark wrote was true, but he doesn't necessarily say that what Mark wrote was all in order, which uh, might help with a little bit of uh, those of you who struggle with like the chronology differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and yeah. how John has things in some different orders. So are we suggesting that it's not, it's not scribed so much as it is like heard and written down later at a date, at a later date? I, you know, that's how I, that's how I sort of took it. Like that, maybe you know, these were sermons or these were stories that Peter taught over and over again. Mm-hmm. And once either Peter was arrested or Peter was dead, that the audience around Mark was like, "Hey, you were around Peter all the time. Can you write down everything that Peter remembered being with Jesus?" So, right. you know, whether those were in sort of you know sermon like notes that uh, you know he kept, or whether those were just the stories that he you know told constantly. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a bit more of a, you know, not necessarily a scribe of when Peter's talking, but maybe a little bit more, you know, Peter's memoirs as told by Mark. Which would kind of explain like the, the rushed connectors that are between each story. Like immediately they went there and then this happened exactly then. Yeah. I mean, interesting style in Mark, like how he just sort of like, it's just very to the point. One thing to the next thing to the next thing. Yeah. It just sort of links everything together and you almost wonder that, you know, that statement about, you know, maybe he didn't write in order, uh, that, that, that Papias said that Mark didn't necessarily write in order, but yet that book reads almost like event after event. Exactly, after event. Yeah. I mean, you get these like really intense days with Jesus where you get yeah. this, uh, you know, he's feeding 5,000, he's walking on water, he's healing <laughs> masses and it, and it reads as if it all, you know, this is, 48 hours of pure, you know, Messiah action. You it's know? like TV and I crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, interesting, interesting style. I, I think there's a little bit of cre- uh, credibility in that it's attributed to Mark and whichever Mark you think that is, but that, uh, who's Mark? I mean, who cares? You know, right, the first right. church, Peter's important, you know, James is important, um, James, uh, Jesus' brother is important, um, you know, John's important, um, and, and Mark wasn't one of the 12. Um, you know, according to Papias, Mark didn't even really hang around with Jesus. Um, he only hung around with Peter. And yeah. so you get this sense of like, you know, why would why would the first church ascribe such an important document to such an unimportant person? And it's sort of, well, maybe it's because he actually did it. Right. And, and the fact that he's not even, a lot of scholars are assuming that he's not even of Jewish descent. Yeah. Like that's like, that's the, that 
to me, that's that's really important for his credibility. That or maybe not so for his, for his credibility, but like it's an important piece that like the Jewish Christians would not have considered him. Uh, he wasn't Jewish, so yeah. he would not have been a part of the Jewish Christian Church in the very beginning. Yeah, and his audience is most likely not Jewish. You know, he goes out of his way to explain you know Jewish customs. He explains them here and there. He uses um, Roman uh, time periods versus Jewish time periods when he talks about which watch in the night. He also is. uses like his geographical uh, setup is not correct either. He uses different names for different for different lakes, for different bodies of water, for different areas. It doesn't match up with uh, much of the other writings around him at that time. Mm-hmm. Interesting how much he translates for his audience right he yeah. translates quite a bit and i you know maybe for a future date i'd love to sort of go through the aramaic scenes and mark i just think those are so fascinating that he uses in a few select places he uses the actual words of jesus you know in aramaic versus translating what jesus said and i think that's a it's a fascinating um uh you know uh, yeah. detail uh and and why you know he does it uh, six or seven times in there and i think it's an interesting uh detail to round off the discussion on his authorship I think we also, you know, when when was it written? You know, most people think that this was been written in the 60s, possibly prior to the fall of Rome, or fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> Definitely prior to the fall of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> but prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70, that uh, Mark would have, you know, maybe written this to some persecuted Christians in the, uh, in the, in the mid-60s, maybe even late 60s. We have more definite dates for, Mark, uh, for Matthew and Luke. We have... Matthew that kind of incorporates the 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 war against Jerusalem with um, Nero in seventy. So you have that like you have kind of a, um, a mentioning in there. Also, Luke specifically mentions and attributes different sayings or different uh, pieces of of Jesus talking uh, and attributes it to Rome and and the Roman government. So you have you have both of those gospels that are that are like more specific on that. So it would definitely be before that and. Uh, and there's a lot of relatively recent history that, that, that claims that Mark was actually the first gospel written and that um, uh, Matthew and Luke build off of it. And this is, uh, I say, relatively new as far as history because, you know, this is the, the 20th century or, or the late 19th century when this was sort of uh, came into discussion. Prior to then, everybody assumed Matthew was actually the first book written. And uh, that's why Matthew is actually ordered first in the, in the canon and Mark was considered a, basically a abbreviated form of Matthew. Right. And uh, it wasn't until later scholarship where scholars started saying, well, you know what? Um, uh, almost all of Mark uh, is used in Matthew or Luke. And actually a good 70%, a good uh, 70, 70 plus percent of Mark is actually in both Matthew and um, Luke. And, and where... Mark shows up in Matthew and Luke, it's almost in the same order and almost in the same verbiage. So there seems to be that maybe they borrowed a lot from Mark. And Mark actually only has, uh, you know, maybe less than 5% of Mark is actually 100% unique to Mark. All the rest of it is, um, it shows up in one of the other Gospels. The areas where Mark um, is unoriginal to Matthew and Luke are the, uh, go with the theory called the two-source theory. The two-source theory suggests that wherever Matthew and Luke match up with Mark, uh, or where they don't match up with Mark, but they match up with Matthew and Luke, it goes with a um, with a book called Q. Q is simply a book of sayings, whatever Jesus, all the Jesus sayings that um, are mentioned throughout, it goes into Q. 
and Q is, uh, and so with these two these two sources, Mark and Q, you Matthew and Luke had two sources to be able to write their gospels off of. So let's talk a little bit about the, how Mark is structured. So uh, there's a couple of theories on the structure of Mark. Um, there's a sort of a geographical uh, theory where Mark sort of uh, focuses in on Galilee for uh, kind of the first half of the book and then sort of transitions uh, towards Jerusalem for the latter part of the book um, and then uh, and then sort of brings it back out uh, at the end of the gospel where Jesus says, uh, tell my disciples that, or my, I told my disciples I was going to meet him back out in Galilee. That might be uh, an intentional structure uh, to sort of show how Jesus had sort of focused on the outsiders um, and how uh, though Jesus had gone to the heart of Jerusalem and to the very heart of Judaism, that he had gone back out to the outsiders because uh, Galileans were sort of the outsiders in that in that time. So that might be a possible structure for it. There's a there's a dramatic structure that people see in Mark. Uh, built off of sort of a Roman or Greek play structure where there's sort of this first act where there's this, um, you know, building up to a point of crisis. And that's generally considered basically the first half of the book through chapter eight, where um, Jesus is sort of gaining popularity and and up to the point where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, um, sort of his great declaration there in chapter eight. And then uh, the second act is where um, there's sort of these, you know, conflicting parties uh, working on their individual plans, and you have sort of Jesus and his disciples heading to Jerusalem, uh, and then uh, secondarily you have sort of the, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law sort of conspiring to kill Jesus. And then there's a third act uh, starting in, uh, the, towards the end of the book around chapter 14 where the Jewish leaders have Jesus crucified, um, and, and this is an act in the, that type of structure where the uh, the two parties would clash and there would be an overturning of the situation sort of in favor of the winner. And that's where you have the leader sort of enacting this, uh, you know, their plan to crucify Jesus, but God in the end winning uh, through the resurrection of Jesus. And then, uh, you know, there's uh, a couple other structures that maybe people see in there. I think um, thematically, though, uh, Mark definitely focuses on a couple of things. One is uh, the Son of God, uh, and he starts off the book saying, uh, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and then he sort of hits that uh, a few times. There's uh, where Jesus is baptized by John and declared the Son of God by God, which is handy. Uh, there's also the moment where the Roman soldier recognizes him as the Son of God. So there's a few key moments where he sort of brings out Jesus as the Son of God. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself almost exclusively refers to himself as the Son of Man, uh, not a real popular title for Messiah back then, <laughs> but an interesting uh, 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 title that he gave himself because that's really a... Uh, a title that is more, you know, I am uh, a human, a uh, human being, and, and it's less about being divine, and it's more about being man's representative. Uh, and Ezekiel used that term a ton to describe himself. Uh, it was called that by, you know, the, the various uh, people in his vision, that he was sort of this representative of mankind in front of God. And so I think Jesus, you know, sort of choosing that moniker for himself is an interesting moniker. There's a huge theme in Mark around the failure of the disciples, um, to understand who he was, uh, it seems that almost everybody else understands that he is the Christ, except for his very intimate followers. Uh, demons are the first ones to pronounce him as Jesus. Like I said, the Roman soldier obviously picks up that he's the son of God. Um, the disciples all along are chastised for not quite understanding what Jesus is talking about and just not getting that he's that he's uh, the son of God. And then uh, the infamous messianic secret of Mark is another mm -hmm. common structure, and that's a... Um, 
where you have uh, Jesus uh, doing all these great healings and telling everybody to be quiet and not say a single thing about it, which is really, really uh, kind of contradictory to uh, kind of the general notion of Christianity that we're supposed to spread the good news. And Mark, who, you know, sort of starts off with saying, here's the good news, which yeah. <laughs> you know we would think would be something to spread. Uh, you have Jesus himself saying, shh, don't tell anybody. Yeah. I know I just, I know I just made you walk and you've never, ever walked, but shh, don't tell anybody. So, and so Messianic Secret, what's that all about, Colin? What's, what's your thoughts on Messianic Secret? I don't know. As it's been called. The, the, yeah, the, the, I mean, there's a couple different things that I think about that. Like the messianic secret, yeah, like like you mentioned, is is extremely contradictory to like the to the way that I don't. It seems very strange that he would go out of his way to do. I mean, healing after healing after healing after uh, you know, um, sending out of demons to feeding five thousand, and he does all of these things, and then he's constantly telling people to keep their mouths quiet about that, about about him doing these things, and like and. There's a couple. I've heard a couple different theories on that. Like one is that he, it's not his time to get um, busted by the authorities yet. Yeah, the, just sheer popularity. Yeah, it's just, like, it's just a matter of like I don't want to get busted. Yeah, I mean everybody, you know, the, sort of the lengthening uh, time of his ministry, right? Like if he can buy more time, if people yeah. kind of keep their mouth shut. Yeah, and just the, the even just management of the sheer popularity. I mean. Mark makes it really explicit that everywhere Jesus goes, he can barely huge crowds. Yeah, he can barely hide, and this is even before there's Twitter. So I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's the old-fashioned word of mouth getting around. So exactly, yeah. So there's definitely uh, maybe a, a population management thing going on there. Yeah, and so then there, there's that. There's also the like the, I've heard of theories that it's testing the testing the the disciples. Um, I mean, you have Cephas or um, or Peter, who is the first one to like, truly pronounce him as the uh, as the son of god you have um so there's that theory of just like putting his his people to the test um you know maybe it may be in conjunction with that theory is also sort of the and along those lines of mark really seems to turn the tide of his book around chapter eight with peter's confession that he is the christ and then followed shortly thereafter by his transfiguration sort of showing that he is you know divine and um there's a sense of Mark um, maybe potentially telling his audience that Jesus isn't just a wonder worker. Like he's not just a healer. Um, Jesus isn't, you know, just some crazy person that said he was really important. Uh, Jesus wasn't just this huge celebrity that went around. Jesus wasn't just this great teacher. Um, He seems to manage that sense of like all of these things you might think about Jesus. Jesus himself is saying, don't tell people about this. What he does want people to tell, talk about, is to talk about the cross, which is really interesting. An interesting thing that I that well, something that I think is really interesting is that I think we have this. Uh, there's a common understanding that, or misunderstanding rather, that that Jesus is a rarity in this way. That he's going around and doing these things. That he's talking. That he's preaching. That he's healing. That he's uh, exercising. That he's doing all these exercising is, demons. Exercising. Just, he was exercising. I mean, it's well, a lot of yeah, walking. He did, he did do a lot of it's walking. It's a lot of walking. <laughs> yeah. I'm just. I'll give him that. I mean, you have to give him that. Yeah. But exercising demons and and all of these things and there's like um, it's he's this is not like unique. Well, it's unique in 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 it in that um. How unique in, in a lot of how he did it. Exactly, and, but, and how he did it. But, but that he did it is not particularly unique. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. you have a lot of people that are going around at this time doing the same, uh, doing very similar things, 
obviously, uh, probably to not the same like um, success rate. Obviously, you have but but you have people that are doing this, and so that's why it's it's common to call them a teacher. I mean, if if you were to see something for the very first time, you wouldn't subscribe a name as simple as teacher or just rabbi. Mm-hmm. You would probably subscribe like, hey, amazing guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it, I mean, we have. A lot of magicians, but everybody knows Houdini. Yeah, because Houdini did something extremely different. Yes, you know Mark isn't necessarily writing uh, a journalistic, unbiased, three sixty view account of Jesus. He's writing a very specific uh, picture of Jesus and a very uh, contextualized picture of Jesus. And and you can almost um, assume that maybe Mark is telling his readers, or maybe Peter had constantly told people. As amazing as what Jesus did, or as interesting as Jesus sounded when he talked, the focus of Jesus, the focus of what he did was the cross, was the resurrection. And and almost to the point where it's like Jesus is uh, sidestepping the popularity that would come with healing and almost saying, I'm not here to heal. Healing is verifying my saying of who I am. My great uh, wisdom isn't why I came. My wisdom is verifying who I am. And who I am is known by the cross. Who I am is known by, um, by uh, what I do uh, on the third day to raise from the dead. That's who I am. That's the focus of who I am. And all the rest is pointing to that fact. Um, and Mark really seems to emphasize Jesus himself pointing to that fact. Mm-hmm. Don't go out and tell people that, um, somebody's here that's going to make all everybody walk. Go out and tell people that the paralyzed walking again is a sign that God has come and that God is here to do his thing and that thing he's here to do is the cross. Interestingly enough, yeah, uh, Mark, Mark also on his brevity, <laughs> uh, he leaves off uh, two really seemingly important bookends in his gospel. The first yeah. being any sort of origins of where Jesus is from, uh, you know, his birth, uh, you know, uh, any accounts of his youth or um, lineage, or lineage uh, which was really important that the, the Messiah come out of the line of David. Uh, and these are things that uh, Luke and Matthew seemed uh, to go out of their way to really fill in these gaps. And then secondarily, at the end of his book, uh, most people believe Mark ends about uh, a couple of verses into chapter 16, uh, where um, um, the women find the empty tomb and run away scared. And, and if you were to read Mark, potentially in its original context, as most scholars believe it in, sort of the last word of Mark is, they all ran away scared. <laughs> and and uh, uh, again, sort of leaving off all those, you know, post-resurrection experiences and those nice like, hey, Peter, I forgive you for being a jerk and denying me and all those nice sort of, uh, you know, uh, pictures that we have of Jesus appearing multiple times and verifying his resurrection in multiple ways and eating food to prove he's not a ghost, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, the other gospels seem to fill in. And Mark seems to um, have uh, almost cut off two really important ends on 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 the uh, total story of Jesus. Thoughts? It's nuts. I think <laughs> I think that's a really interesting that's a really interesting thing to me. So much of what we have, or so much of Christianity, is based on this idea that there is the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything, and an allusion to the re- resurrection might do the same thing, but it's the definite description of the resurrection that changes everything for Christianity. And, and it's interesting that one of our, the very first sources, or thought to be the very first source of this, doesn't talk about that. 
And it's like, did did Peter not talk about that at all? I mean, in every in all both of the other gospels, or all three of the other gospels, we have Peter talking to Jesus post resurrection, and being one of the first people that he goes to. You have Paul, Paul talking about going and talking to the the people that that Jesus you know spoke to. Um, Paul being or Peter being one of them, and it's 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 interesting that if he's not necessarily scribing this, but he's just writing off of like writing off of account, he would have still mentioned. That like oh and and there was other stuff that went along with it yeah and particularly if he's writing to sort of a persecuted group yeah. of Christians that maybe are having a hard time for their faith it seems like he would have maybe bolstered that last part a little bit further yeah. <laughs> with a little bit more you know Jesus showing up and, and and I just want to throw out you know Thessalonians is generally considered to be the first book in the New Testament written and that was written by Paul so probably in the in the in the fifties. And um, and Paul does you know be very explicit in his first chapter. He does say that that uh, that they're waiting for Jesus to return, and he raised Jesus from the dead. So <coughs> so the resurrection and the resurrection from the dead is is definitely uh, documented prior to Mark. So Mark yeah. didn't just leave off with an empty tomb. So it begs the question: on why would Mark be so intentional to leave this out of his story? And uh, unfortunately, he didn't uh, put a PS in there as to why he did yeah, that. He really didn't. Um, I, w- I wonder if he's writing to a persecuted church, if he um, left sort of an open question of like, what are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. what, what, how are you going to react? Um, and maybe give him a little consolation. The um, early church itself didn't quite know how to react to, to, this, to this phenomenon. There's this also there's also the the other there's another like uh, I mean maybe a little less uh, popular thought on um on the passion story which would kind of explain the leaving off of the um resurrection which would be the uh, the psalm 22 theory which is that mark would have written what would have known the story of jesus jesus passion story the the passion story being the death of jesus the um and the going to the cross and all of the things that were happening and that and that he would have known the story but maybe not have known or have may, would not have known all the details or he would have seen the details in Psalms 22 which has a, has a couple of pieces uh, of the passion story in it which are that they mock him and spit on him they cast lots for his clothing that they um, they you know they bark at him like dogs people look at uh, watch upon him as he dies and and this comes from like this F. Stanley Jones is a is a professor and writer, and he kind of mentions this idea of a uh, persecuted righteous one. And it's uh, it's throughout the Psalms you have this right this uh, Mesopotamian um, being person who is pers- he's he's being persecuted and that he is a righteous person, but that he's being looked down upon, and so uh, only to later be be pronounced righteous and come back to be in go- in God's good graces. And so you have like. Mark may be using a Psalms as a outline or like a uh, you know a, a note of the things that were happening because he might have heard those things before and so the the passion story in Mark is is written off of Psalms twenty two account. Yeah, to build on that, I think um, you know we don't have a saturation of this literature in our culture, so when there's an allusion to it, we only read surface level of that illusion. So when Jesus is on the cross and he says, you know, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we sort of another piece that I completely forgot. That's actually, yeah, the start of Psalm 22. Yeah. Um, And, and um, you know, when he says that on the cross, 
uh, to us, you know, that he's saying, you know, on the, on the surface level, that's saying it sounds like God's forsaking his own son, right? Uh, the next level down to that is, oh, he's quoting a psalm, right? Mm-hmm. He's quoting Psalm 22. And I think that the, the next level down from that is, is he's alluding to not just the uh, first phrase of the psalm that may be resonating, but, but the entirety of the psalm and the entirety of the thought. And when you read Psalm 22, it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes through this narrative and this, this tragic uh, situation and ends with, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it, or it is finished, right? And so you have this sort of this bookend of a narrative of God's uh, winning and Jesus saying on the cross, the first part of this uh, psalm is almost the same as him saying, remember the entirety of this story and that as bad as this looks in this moment, God wins. And it's something that our culture doesn't have. And my only analogy is if somebody was to say, um, uh, oh, say, can you see? We would know, oh, you're, you're talking about the Star Spangled Banner, which is about America. And it's a, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's an important song to America. And we would know all of that off of just that one uh, phrase. Uh, but to an outsider, that would just sound like somebody saying, can you see something, right? And yeah. so I think that's a lot of times how we take those narratives. And I think that in particular, you know, Jesus was intentional in this. I think Mark was intentional in it. Um, I think that culture knew enough to know what they were talking about, that when Mark said, hey, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, that people would think, oh, it's the entirety of the message of Psalm 22, which isn't just that God is forsaking somebody. It's the message that though God looks like, though things look terrible and God looks like he has forsaken his holy ones, in the end, God wins. Which is also a potential answer to why there is no resurrection story is because it's it's alluded to from the beginning part of this. And they may not feel like they're winning at that moment, right? I mean, they may have, uh, they may be under the gun. Uh, they may be seeing their friends die and get arrested for believing in Jesus. They may be, you know, getting beheaded for not worshiping the emperor. Who knows what's going on in, in Mark's situation? And it may be a little bit of like, it still looks like God's forsaking us, right? Um, it still looks like we haven't won. So we don't know what winning quite looks like here. So, Colin, I think, uh, you know, now's the time we got to ask ourselves, who gives a flip? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Right? Who cares? We've talked about, you know, themes in Mark, and we've talked about authorship of Mark, and we've talked about, you know, uh, you know, lots of interesting theory around Mark, but who cares? What does it matter? What does it matter? Want me to give my take? Yeah, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm going to think about why I think it matters while you talk. <laughs> so for me, the breaking down of Scripture, the, um, the looking at it in a more in-depth way, the piecing it apart, the looking at the, the um, alternative thoughts and theories on, on Scripture and the text itself, um, is that it does just that. It takes it from Scripture to text. Scripture to text is is going from um, unapproachable to approachable. Anybody can pick up Harry Potter and you can read it and you can tear it apart and you can get different meanings and different ideas. And we have like a semi, a semi cult that is created out of like Harry Potter fans and Lord of the Rings fans. And it's because you can read these things and you can um, figure out what they mean. People take Lord, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. And this is a perfect example of people that take the, take a, take a, 
book, take text, and they torn it apart and they found many different themes, maybe themes that even uh, C.S. Lewis didn't intend on having there. It becomes approachable. And once something is approachable, then it, it's, more, it's, like, it's more attainable to get knowledge from it, to get like whatever was meant or whatever might have been meant or whatever may have never been meant but can be gotten from it. For, so for me, like the, the dissecting of the, of the Scripture is important for the idea that, or to, to make it approachable to me. That it's not, that we have like, we, we give, we give God names like holy of holy. We, we subscribe so much to it that it becomes like a, um, intangible. That we don't want to get too close to it. We don't want, we don't want to prove anything wrong. We don't want to, be, or we don't want to look too deeply because we might prove something wrong. We don't want to tear it apart too much because there's a chance that you might mess it up. And so, that, and, and, and so by breaking that down, you start to look at it for what it is, and you might actually find out what it was. And I think you were t- telling me something earlier about that. Yeah, and I, I, I really like what you said about sort of taking it from Scripture to text and sort of, you know, taking it out of the, you know, untouchable, you know, uh, holy realm and putting it into normal terms. That at one point, this was just a guy in a piece of paper writing down uh, what he remembered to the best of his knowledge. And, and I think that... You know, that idea of like, you know, that, that the scripture is so infallible that there can't be anything wrong with it. And that, that, you know, Mark's hand was guided by an angel or by Jesus himself. And so, you know, Mark is just this automaton writing down what Jesus is whispering in his ear. You know, uh, I think it breaks that down and says, you know, here's people doing the best they can to understand who Jesus was, uh, to understand what happened, uh, to encourage each other to keep to keep on going on in their faith. Um, and I think that I think the important thing uh, in looking at scripture is to think that you know there there is maybe some gaps in it, maybe there's some flaws in it, maybe there's some uh, breaks in it where it doesn't make sense, um, and maybe there's some humanity in there. Um, and that I think in that humanity that Jesus is, as you said, approachable through that. And I think it's really uh, a good thing that that God never uh, gave us the definitive. Uh, picture of himself, that there's no description of what Jesus looked like, that there's no photographic evidence, that there's no, you know, handwritten note from Jesus that says, this is the number one thing for all time, never forget this. I think there's some, you know, vagueness in there because I think God uh, set out to uh, start his new kingdom uh, through Jesus as a spiritual kingdom and to say, my relationship with you is in spirit. And to do that, requires faith. To do that requires the intangible. And I think that God left some evidence and he helped guide the, the development of the canon and the authors uh, enough that there's enough of a picture of Jesus that we can all have a relationship with. But I think he still intends that relationship to be directly with him and not with uh, some writing, not with a book. Uh, we are not to have a relationship with the Bible. We're to have a relationship with, with him. And so I think there's vagueness in there. And I think those that vagueness is what gives us the room to get in there and play around and say, hey, what about this? What about this? You know, maybe we could pull this idea out of scripture. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe Mark intended nothing about what we talked about today. <laughs> maybe he intended something entirely different. Uh, and, and, and at the end of ourselves, asking ourselves, does it matter? And I think, you know, if nothing else, if we can if we can look at the Bible as, as a signpost uh, pointing towards Jesus, but not as a definitive portrait of Jesus, I think we'll be in a good spot. And I'm hoping that's a, a applicable takeaway for us because that's all we got.
Yeah. <laughs> That's all we got. Because I'm spent. Uh, and and, and uh, I'll just uh, cap it off with uh, only one uh, minor complaint about the coffee tonight. What's that? Not enough. Not I enough. finished off this mug and was wanting for more. <laughs> and so, future future note, we need at least an entire pot of coffee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was the special method of brewing this coffee? Uh, tonight I did a Chemex pour over. Which, uh, if you guys need a visual, think of a meth lab. That's what it looks like. Except it's making coffee instead of meth. Yeah, sometimes. I'm just no. <laughs> and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this has been Coffee and Theology with Brent. And Colin. Enjoy. That was...